In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Wherever you go, there you are. Confucius said this, and I found it to be true with cancer life. Wherever you go, there you are. Whoever you were before cancer, whatever little anxious preoccupations you had before diagnosis, they will still be there. The modern conception of a cancer survivor is that they are enlightened. They have all the answers to living joyfully and with fulfillment. Those things can be acquired, but they still take a lot of hard work and self-reflection. They don't get pumped into you along with the chemo, sadly. Today, my guest has a story for us all about facing her pre-cancer demons while simultaneously facing cancer. A quick note that this story contains depictions of and discussion around disordered eating, so if that's not something you can face today, you might want to skip this episode. My guest today is Madison Hager. Madison is a Midwest native who was diagnosed just months into the coronavirus pandemic and only four days after her first wedding anniversary at the age of 29. She and her husband live in Nebraska with their two cats and a Pyrenees mix named Basil, who Madison reports is just perfect. During the course of her diagnosis, she discovered her breast cancer was hormone positive and she carries the ATM genetic mutation. After a lumpectomy, eight rounds of dose-dense ACT, and then a mastectomy, she was officially declared cancer-free in November 2020. Madison tells me she has an inordinate amount of pride that her oncologist described her as, quote, charming in her patient file, but is working on caring much less about what people think. Welcome to The Burn, Madison. Thank you so much for having me, April. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited you're here, too. So you're reading a piece you wrote called The Chocolate Chip Cookie That Broke the Camel's Back. This comes from yes. our 20. This comes from our 2021 body issue. And each year we do a body issue specifically to talk about how cancer affects our bodies and our perceptions of them. And after you read, we'll talk about cancer meeting you where you are, misconceptions of cancer, and attempts to control the out of control. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat. All right, Madison, I'll let you take it away. Okay. The Chocolate Chip Cookie That Broke the Camel's Back by Madison Hager. You can't imagine how disappointed I was to learn that most breast cancer patients don't lose weight during the course of their treatment. When the oncologist gravely delivered the news that my breast cancer was more advanced than they initially thought and would require chemotherapy after all, I was weirdly elated. I thought, great, 
not being able to eat will be a plus and I'll finally arrive at the skinny body I truly deserve. And even though I'll have cancer, I will be beautiful and thin and no one will ever be mad at me again because I will be skinny and also have a life-threatening illness. This could really work in my favor. It was only months later when I finally made some distance from active treatment that I began to realize I had been in the throes of an old problem, an eating disorder. Everything started to click one day after I had a real, honest-to-God meltdown after eating a cookie. I was sobbing, breathless from the big gasps rattling from inside my chest. I had just broken one of my many food rules and had dared eat a lone chocolate chip cookie after having some bread. It dawned on me then that maybe it wasn't normal that I had been using two different calorie counting apps all throughout treatment, and more importantly, that there was another way of living that didn't involve self-flagellation over baked goods. I didn't arrive at an eating disorder because I got cancer. My need to control different aspects of my life, including what I eat, is closely related to my need to control the environment around me so that I don't feel anxious. That I aspired to look sickly from chemo in the name of thinness is absurd. But when my body betrayed me by giving me cancer, leaning into the disordered eating felt like having a say over a situation that was entirely out of my control. I was a fat kid growing up, and you better believe I learned from an early age that this was a negative trait, something other people didn't approve of. It's not that I learned this at home. My parents never commented on my weight or my body, but my peers were quick to do so, seemingly as soon as we learned to verbalize our thoughts. I was a sweet kid. I was precocious. I could read when I entered kindergarten before my fifth birthday. I liked making up wild stories. I was curious and bright, imaginative. I was all the things we want our children to be, but each time I was bullied for my weight, I felt like a failure like I had personally done something to make whoever mocked my body hate me. I was too innocent to develop the kind of festering psychological wound of self-hatred that I have nursed through most of my life. I have many garden variety memories of being bullied, both by kids and adults alike. There are so many that it's not even worth singling one out. And yet, when I close my eyes and put myself back in those places, I can see that all of these memories share a common thread the sinking feeling that there was something inherently wrong with me for looking different, for not being pretty or thin, and for embodying the acute pain of otherness that is being fat in our society. To escape this pain, I began dieting when I was 12. It was the summer before I started junior high. I took weird supplements that were part of a multi-level marketing scheme, ate fewer carbs, drank lots of water, and started exercising. And it worked. By the first day of school, I had lost 25 pounds. The compliments rolled in, languidly washing over me in waves of approval. One day, walking down the hall, a boy who had followed me home chanting, fatty, fatty, two by four, couldn't get through the kitchen door, just months earlier, stopped and said, dang, you look good. I felt like a celebrity. I didn't stop there. In health class, we watched an old news special on actress Tracy Gold that detailed her difficult battle with anorexia. It was meant to serve as a warning to us that eating disorders were real and easy to fall victim to, but it didn't scare me. I saw anorexia as a means to finally obtain the perfect body, and soon enough, starving myself became my new normal. 
What's funny is that I was quick to point the finger at other girls I thought were too thin or had eating disorders while I hid beneath an oversized hoodie meant to conceal my body. When my stomach would gurgle loudly in class, I didn't think I need to eat. Instead, I thought self-righteously, I'm glad I didn't eat. At 12, I was convinced this was my ticket to salvation for having been born with the wrong genes. I never ended up receiving treatment for my eating disorder. It simply petered out into disordered eating that I could conceal as a quest for health, though truthfully, I'm not sure whom I had fooled. I do not blame my parents for their inability to see how sick I really was, but I wish they would have because my relationship with food and my body never normalized. Whether it was dabbling in bulimia throughout my teenage years or faking ADHD in college to get an Adderall prescription to the miles-long list of diets I pursued in my 20s, I was always trying to change my body and, to a certain extent, who I was. When I got my cancer diagnosis, I wished for two things. To lose enough weight that I looked frail and beautiful like cancer patients in the movies and or total transcendence from my body dysmorphia and self-loathing via ego death. Two very different desires, but what can I say? I'm a woman who contains multitudes. Of course, neither thing happened. I was terrified to gain weight during chemo, so I meticulously tracked everything I ate. Then, once I realized I wasn't losing any weight, I kept waiting around for my ego to die from going bald, which also never happened. If anything, my ego got much louder and my concern with my appearance grew tenfold. I guess I thought a disease like breast cancer would eclipse how tedious and terrible it feels to have a body. I thought learning how short life really is would open my heart and fix up my disordered eating couldn't. Instead, it broke me open in ways that were eerily familiar. It was the same old feeling of people's eyes on me and the awareness that I was different from them because of how I looked. It was feeling lost again because the voices of strangers have trained how I think about my body. I am trying to teach myself that I don't need other people's approval to exist, regardless of what I look like. There is still a lot to unpack. I have bigger questions about whiteness and thinness, a femininity, of a woman's entire personhood reduced to her appearance so that she might feel safe in a world made for men. These are the things I don't have answers to yet. I only know that I have been complacent thus far and that I'm trying not to be anymore. I stopped dieting after my meltdown over the cookie. I deleted the calorie counting apps off my phone. I started learning about food neutrality. I even stopped exercising with the goal of changing my appearance. More importantly, I finally found the words to ask the people closest to me for help. The transcendence of my corporeal form hasn't happened yet, but that's okay. Survivorhood hasn't really made me feel like I've been pumped full of wisdom or sage advice either. If I've learned anything since my diagnosis, it's that cancer taught me to redefine my self-worth in a way that's richer than face value. I am starting to feel beautiful because beauty moves through me, because I can crack myself open and stare into the raw bits and still love righteously, wholeheartedly, not because looking a certain way gives me permission to occupy space. Mm. Amazing. Maddie, thank you so much for that. Really beautiful writing. So let's do this. We'll take a break here for a testimonial. And when we come back, you and I will chat a little bit. Hi, this is Gretchen. I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 37. 
And not until about two or three years after my diagnosis, um, during the pandemic actually, I signed up for a wildfire writing workshop. And it was probably hands down one of the most therapeutic six weeks of my life. I had never had any therapy um, since my diagnosis. So going through this workshop was the first time I really was forced to um, head on, face a lot of the issues that I didn't even realize that I hadn't dealt with yet. Um, so in addition to that though, what was even more impactful about that workshop was the opportunity to listen to everybody else's stories and to see a part of myself in other people's stories. Even though we all came from such different walks of life, we were all had completely different diagnoses. Some people were just diagnosed. Some people were five, 10 years out from the diagnosis, um, even longer. And um, just to have that experience and that intimate conversation um, during that time um, just made me feel a lot less alone. And um, I don't know, I just highly recommended it. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, so thank you, April. Thank you so much for the love, Gretchen. All right. Welcome back, Maddie. Thank you again for your powerful writing. Thank you so much for letting me share that essay and some of the stuff I've learned about myself along the way. Yes. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because I really want to get into some of that transformation. Um, and also just acknowledge that you wrote something very personal and you let me publish it. And then I said, will you um, come read it and expose yourself again? And you're doing that. So I think that's a really big deal. So thank you for that. I, you know what, I totally subscribe to being vulnerable as much as possible. And I've found that by allowing myself to be vulnerable, it makes me feel stronger and more connected to people. So I'm happy to do it. Mm. I am definitely a, a member of that same philosophy in that camp. So yes, absolutely. Well, so let's get into your story. I've heard a lot of women um, lament the weight gain that cancer brings and how surprisingly contradictory that is to what the media puts out there, which we now know is the the end stage of cancer. It's the wasting stage of cancer. It's not the steroid-fueled cancer treatment part of cancer. So we develop these um, bloated moon faces, our bodies change, and not only is it frustrating to us, but it's not matching what the world thinks of as a cancer patient. So I've also heard other women do kind of a little bit of what you talked about in your story with that bargaining of like, okay, well, if I'm going to go through cancer and I'm going to go through chemo, then at least I will get... XYZ, you know, the body that I've always wanted, the enlightenment that I've always wanted, meaning, you know, in life, fulfillment, etc. It all makes sense. And unfortunately, it doesn't really work out that way. Um, 
I know that this is the nut of what your story is about, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about coming face to face, literally with that realization that that's what you were doing as you set out to write this piece. Was it so clear to you before that, or did it kind of emerge as you were writing? It's it's so it's indescribable almost. I mean, it emerged as I was writing because I had been following Wildfire for a while on Instagram, and then like a week before my the essays for the body issue were due, I was like, you know what? I think I can write about this because I had been writing a blog throughout treatment, so I had kind of adapted something that I'd, I had already written. And expanded upon it. Um, But I, it was like I was, you know, it's like so cheesy, whatever. I was writing it and like the spirit of my muse creativity was there and I was processing it while I was putting it out on the page. Mm -hmm. I love that. I feel that that's one of the most um, healing aspects of writing is sometimes we set out with a question already in mind and sometimes we discover the question while we're writing it and in the same process find the path to understanding ourselves while doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was I don't know, like I it just poured out of me. It really did. Like I think I wrote the first draft of the essay that I submitted in like an hour and a half. And then, of course, I edited it. But I mean, it was like under the gun, just like poured out of me and I got it on the page and was just like, wow. So that's what was inside of me. That's what that's what I've been dealing with the last however many months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love when I hear that writing is is easy and it's flowing because sometimes it's that way. And sometimes it's like, you know, hard. It's really, really, really hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like pulling teeth. You're just like, mm-hmm. why doesn't my brain work? Exactly. Exactly. Well, one of my favorite lines in your piece is cancer broke me open in ways that were eerily familiar. And I I find that to be so true. Coming back to this idea of, you know, cancer meets you where you are. Um, the same struggles that we have in quote unquote regular life are obviously going to unfortunately, irritatingly be there even when you're going through cancer. Were there other aspects that you found yourself face to face with other parts of these broken, these, these broken familiar things? Were they there for you in other ways? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, the whole process really made me examine just my relationship to myself and how I thought the outside world viewed that self, you know? So, and a lot of what I write about that feeling, that eerily familiar feeling of people's eyes being on your body came from my experiences as a child who was fat and bullied for that. Um, And I do have a lot of privilege to reflect on that now as an adult, because I have a lot of thin privilege. I'm you know, I'm a size eight. I'm not, the way I view myself is dysmorphic. It is not the way the world views me. And so, you know, through my experience, I was trying to be hyper aware of straddling that line of, I had this experience as a child because I was different. And it's not my experience now as an adult pre-cancer. Um, And then when I was diagnosed, it felt like going back into that world where people could see that there was something different about me and they stared. And it's not, even if I wore a hat, even if I wore a wig, they're just, I wasn't able to escape what I felt was other people's 
opinions of my body. You know, when you go through something like cancer and you do chemo, it is so obvious that you're sick. I mean, you can draw on the best, most beautiful feathered eyebrows. You can wear a $2,000 wig made of human hair, but it's just, it's almost like the uncanny valley. When you see someone who is going through chemo, it doesn't matter the disguise. Like you can tell they are not a part of the quote unquote world of the, the well. It's true. It's true. And it's interesting. What you're talking about is reminding me of this. I'm struggling to come up with the words exactly for what, for, for the line that I felt was just drawn by you, but I think it's this idea of victim. And I mean that in the sense of the world wanting to know, okay, what did you do? So I don't do that. And we see that in fat shaming and we see it in illness too. And unfortunately in cancer, many people realize that cancer is random or genetic or something you know else. But even still, it's so scary that the whole world wants to know, okay, where did you go wrong? So I don't do that. And it's the same when you were a kid, right? Like you're being punished for something that is perceived to be your fault. Mm -hmm. And then cancer comes along. And first of all, you know, shame on you for getting cancer. And then you don't even look like a cancer patient. What are you doing? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird. I, and I think to sort of echo what you're saying, I think that that is totally fear motivated. People think they are protecting themselves, right? Like if we bully someone for not being thin or we bully whatever, whenever we comment on someone's appearance and we make that our business, which it absolutely is not, internally, we are trying to protect ourselves. And I say that from the experience of having spent a really large portion of my life feeling insecure and thus feeling really concerned with other people's bodies in the past. You know, like, I can remember being in my early 20s and I i mean, who hasn't had to work through issues with men, right? But I mean, I, as much of a feminist as I am, little baby me used to, frankly, behind closed doors, bully other women for their appearance because I felt insecure. And now as someone in their 30s, I have to look back on that and go, wow, I was really scared. And I was trying to turn that away from me. And so when you have cancer, you know, it's kind of like people start asking you questions like, well, did you, did you know that you were at risk for cancer? Did you, did, were you a smoker? Right. Because they're scared and they're trying to figure out, like you said, what did you do wrong that I can try and avoid so that I don't end up in the same place? And I felt that a lot when I was sick. I felt like I was very, this is so weird. I've done a 180, but during treatment, I was very, very transparent on my Instagram. I posted all the time. I was posting to my stories. I was writing a blog. And now as part of my healing, I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not really on social media anymore. Um, But I always felt like I was like a cautionary tale. Like people saw me, they saw my suffering and they were like, "Mm, mental note to not do that if I can help it, which Mm -hmm. of course it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. But it's so interesting. You know, I've heard, I, I haven't, I don't have a lot of evidence to back this up, but I've heard that some of the most um, sh- harmful, shaming, fat phobic type things come from people who've lost a lot of weight, you know, who were once fat themselves. And 
it's making me think about how there is some of that prejudice within the breast cancer community between early stage and stage four, where I think it comes back to just total fear. But I think there's some aspects of, well, I beat it. So why can't you? And of course, I'm saying beat it in like quotation marks, because who knows, you know, if if cancer is coming back for you. But it's such an interesting psychological thing that we as humans do totally, completely out of fear and that and that alone and just trying to identify, okay, how can I make sure you stay in your little box over there and that doesn't bleed over into me? Well, it's so interesting you say that because I actually read a newsletter that you sent out and something you said has really, really stuck with me. And that is when you had to make this decision to either stay in cancer land mm-hmm. or to exit it and let your life take a different path. And I think that it is amazing that you have decided to stay and build your work around it and give a platform to thrivers and survivors, because as we know, as young cancer patients, that doesn't really exist. It's not very common. Um, I think because cancer is this experience where you are in fight or flight all the time, I think that even when someone's like, I'm two years out, my hair's grown back, I still think that lizard brain is going off. And so... I think that that's why you even see infighting amongst the people within cancer communities. I mean, and I think sometimes for some people stay, I think, and you can tell me if this is right or not, but I feel like unless you are very proactive about guarding your mental health and having boundaries, if you stay in the land of cancer, then you're kind of going to stay in lizard brain and you're going to feel defensive or you're going to have to feel like, well, I did more treatment than you or whatever, right? No, I think that you're totally right. And it's a really interesting thing to stay in a place that might be repeatedly triggering you over and over again. And um, it's interesting because instead of, quote unquote, desensitizing you, it could be oversensitizing you so that everything becomes really incredibly scary. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's absolutely something. That I have to watch, as you said, you know, staying in this land of cancer myself and watching where where I'm becoming lizard brain, as you said. Like, I really like that you said it that way. So one thing I want to ask you about, going back to your story, just, um, you know, before we we part there, I want to hit this point just in case someone listening needs this. And I think it's... This aspect around the transformation, I love that your story shows this main character, you obviously, but going through these changes and coming toward the end of your story, you're talking about some lessons learned, some answers that you're arriving at. Obviously, there's a lot of questions still left hanging, but one thing that I think you came to was how powerful words can be for controlling an out-of-control situation. And in particular, I want to highlight that you've reached a point where you were able to ask for help. And I wonder if you could just talk for a moment about what that looked like for you in case someone else listening needs needs a little nudge that that they might be needing to ask for help as well. Yeah, of course. So the cookie thing actually happened. I mean, I really, and this was a year ago, so I wouldn't say I'm out of the woods. I wouldn't say I no longer struggle with this. I still do. You know, I'm still a work in progress, but the cookie thing actually happened. One day I had 
I had all these weird food rules, right? Like I could only have a certain amount of carbs. I couldn't eat bread and a dessert. That would be outrageous. And one day I did, I broke one of my food rules and I just, I had a meltdown and I was like, can I curse? Yes. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Why, why do I, why am I using Weight Watchers and my fitness pal? Why am I crying over a cookie? So I had to tell my husband, look, uh, and my husband and I, I mean, I'm, we're vulnerable together. That's part of our relationship. I think that's what makes marriages survive something as big as cancer. And, you know, I just had to come clean to him and tell him like, look, I need, I need help like this. I'm not okay. I think I've been trying to use dieting and my body as a means to control this situation that's out of either of our control, but it's not working and I need help. And then I, you know, once I had sort of talked about it with him and trying to figure out what do I want to do to get help, I started telling some of my friends and they were not surprised when I was like, I think I'm struggling with my eating disorder again. They all were kind of like, yeah, I know. And I, you know, so I was like, oh, okay. I don't, I was not fooling anyone. Got it. But, you know, it's like I said, being vulnerable is so rewarding. I'm totally a Brene Brown head, you know, like I love Brene Brown. I love what she says about making yourself vulnerable. I I just, I always want to connect with people as people, not who they think they should be or who I should be. And so even though it's scary to say I'm struggling, I need help. I'm really, really glad I did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and to to put a underline on that Brene Brown point, I recently listened to the interview she did with James Clear talking about atomic habits. And there was just this brief little moment where they were talking about vulnerability, you know, as she tends to work it into everything, of course. Um, but it was the light bulb moment for me because they were talking about how vulnerability makes you more flexible and able to withstand the winds of of life versus a person who is rigid. You know, I'm thinking about your food rules, right? And you become really rigid and things have to go a certain way that that actually makes you more brittle and breakable in the worst way versus being vulnerable, being open, saying, I need help. Hey, guys, this is happening. Of course, your friends knew it was happening, right? Like we aren't nearly as clever and secretive as we think we are. Um. But yeah, vulnerability is, it's the answer. (laughs) It's the answer to every question, I think. It totally is. I mean, I, I've been listening to the Dare to Lead, Mm. Brene Mm -hmm. Brown podcast, and I read some of the book and what she had said was, when you have to approach a situation that makes you uncomfortable to frame it as let's rumble with vulnerability, you know, like we're going to go take the challenge of being vulnerable. But at the end of the day, I support it. I get it. I I just want to be me. And I feel like if I'm showing up as my true self, even if that self is flawed, even if I know that self is a work in progress, at least I can say I was really there. Oh my gosh. Heck yes. Yes to all that. Thank you so much, Maddie, for being here. So my guest today was Maddie Hager. She wrote The Chocolate Chip Cookie That Broke the Camel's Back, which you can find in the June-July 2021 issue of Wildfire Magazine. The theme was body. So Maddie, I know you said that you're not really on social these days, but where can people find more about you, maybe find some of your writing? Well, my cancer blog is still up and it's called, the URL is just maddiehascancer.com and I spell my name M-A-D-D-Y. Um, yeah, I mean, otherwise I 
I'm not really on social. That was sort of my resolution this year was to take a step back, sort of um, tuning out to tune in. And it's been really good so far. I'm going on month four. I mean, I still like occasionally want to know what Kim Kardashian is doing on Instagram. But other than that, it feels really good to take a step back. But yeah, my blog is still up. People can read my writing from treatment. Excellent. Well, we will definitely link to that in the show notes. Thank you again for being here and loved this discussion with you. Thank you so much, April. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our more than 35 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, please leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing the stories that need to be told. All right, here is your writing prompt. I want you to write on your page this quote from your body. Your body wants to say, I have always been fighting for you, not against you. I have always been fighting for you, not against you. And your writing is to explore what that feels like, to hear that message from your body. If you're able to, if you push against it, if you hate it, whatever comes up for you. Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping your editing, see what needs to come out. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.